evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Florida is ramping up punishments for drug dealers. It's now a first-degree felony murder if someone distributes a controlled substance causing the death of a person. Yes, someone dealing fentanyl is murdering people and they are going to go to prison in the state of Florida. Under mounting pressure over soaring gas prices, House Democrats today passed a bill to punish oil and gas producers for alleged price gouging. But Larry Summers, a top Democratic economic advisor, says this move will have no impact in lowering prices and could even make the situation worse. We'll tell you why. The House passed a new bill that would allow the Department of Justice to monitor and prosecute domestic terrorism. But a Republican dissenter says that's what they're already doing. The $40 billion Ukraine aid package is heading to President Biden's desk for his signature. 11 Republican senators voted against the bill today. The director of the World Health Organization might get unprecedented powers to declare health emergencies worldwide. That's if a push by the Biden administration goes through. But some are skeptical about the WHO's director having that much power. WHO is run by an individual who's been very closely associated with communist movements. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signs a bill increasing penalties for trafficking opioids, including fentanyl and methamphetamine. The governor highlights that fentanyl was the leading cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 45 last year. The bill makes the distribution of methamphetamine, which causes the death of a person, to be a felony murder. We do that with other substances. We will do it with that. And there is methamphetamine coming across the border as well. Used to have see people making it here in the United States. It's actually not as much as it used to be, but it's way more coming across the border now. The legislation also extends the minimum prison sentence for trafficking fentanyl. Those trafficking 4 to 14 grams will face at least seven years in jail instead of three. And those trafficking 14 to 28 grams will face at least 20 years in jail instead of 15. The new law redesignates the sale of a controlled substance from a third-degree felony to a second-degree felony. It also increases the penalties if the person is selling the drugs within 1,000 feet of substance abuse treatment facilities. DeSantis warns, if you're dealing fentanyl, you are killing people and you are going to be put in jail. Democrats on Capitol Hill are facing mounting pressure to get soaring gas prices under control. So today, House Democrats narrowly passed a bill to target oil and gas companies, which they accuse of price gouging. But even some within their own party say this won't help and could make the situation worse. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more. The price you're paying at the pump hit record highs yet again, now inching up close to $5 per gallon on average. This leaves Democrats in control in Washington, scrambling for solutions. And what we're doing is trying to give whatever tools are possible to the federal government, to federal agencies, to try to do what we can to bring down uh, prices. Today, the House passed a bill to prohibit oil and gas producers from selling fuel at prices that the government considers excessive during an energy emergency, with no specific price as a threshold. But even if this could make it to Biden's desk, it would not bring the price down anytime soon. What's your message to the American people who are looking for relief right now and are asking the question, why aren't you guys doing something that would have a more immediate impact? Well, we're doing a number of things. Uh, we're doing market manipulation, actually, today as well. But the fact is that this situation had to be addressed for now. Everything we talk about, we're talking about how do we solve it for now, but how do we prevent it from on the ongoing? But will it help even in the long run? Some Democrats remain skeptical. Former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers served under Obama, and he calls this move dangerous nonsense, telling Bloomberg News that there is no way this will have any effect on inflation. And he says it could even make the issue worse by causing shortages, inhibiting supply responses, which he considers the best way to overcome inflation. A few House Democrats share this concern, one of them Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy saying that it should cause real concern for people who are trying to alleviate the inflation situation. She was one of four Democrats who voted against the bill, joining all Republicans in opposition. 
that's not a plan, it's an agenda. The Democrats and the administration are planning energy failure. And over in the Senate today, the energy secretary was pressed on the reason behind the soaring prices. And so if you're in the oil and gas business and your government is attacking and the president says, I want to get rid of fossil fuel, would you want to go invest a whole bunch of new money? Uh, with uh, oil at $110 a barrel, I don't know that hurt feelings have anything to do with it. I and the speaker was asked if she's concerned that some of these pressing issues will affect the way Americans are voting in these upcoming midterm elections. Her response was essentially that it's not about acknowledging whether or not these problems exist. She says Democrats do acknowledge these problems exist, but she's hopeful that the American people are keeping in mind the proposed solutions that the Democrats in control of Congress have put forth to tackle some of these issues for now. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 18-year-old Peyton Gendron stood silently wearing an orange jail uniform, a mask, and handcuffs as a grand jury indicted him for first-degree murder in the Buffalo shooting spree that killed 10 people. The victim's family members who had attended the hearing left without immediately speaking to reporters. Gendron live-streamed the attack from a helmet camera before surrendering to police outside a local top supermarket. He posted hundreds of pages of writings to online discussion groups shortly before the attack. He detailed his plans for the assault and his racist motivation. The Buffalo Police Commissioner says investigators are working to obtain, review and verify the writings. At his first court appearance last week, Gendron's court-appointed attorney entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. He's due back in court June 9th. The House today passed a bill to authorize certain federal government departments to monitor and prosecute domestic terrorism and hate crimes. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Just who and how many have to die before we take action? Mass shootings in the United States are on the rise. And House Democrats say the common denominator is race. The gunman in each case was a white man, each angry about so-called replacement theory, each traveling some distance to target a minority community. In a near party line vote, Bill H.R. 350 was passed to combat what Democrats call white nationalism in America. The Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, which sits, sits before us today, is the least we can do to signal our opposition to white nationalism and this rising menace of organized intolerance. The act will create three offices that will monitor, investigate, and prosecute domestic terrorism or hate crimes. But Republican representatives had a different view of the bill. Representative Jim Jordan said the Department of Justice is already monitoring domestic terrorism. The Department of Justice went after parents who showed up at school board meetings to voice concerns about what was happening in their child's school. Never forget what they did. They put in... They, they put in in place this apparatus to report to snitch on parents. Jordan said the bill codifies what the DOJ has already been doing. Left-wing political organization, National School Board Association, writes a letter to the Biden administration asking exactly what this bill does. It says use domestic terrorism, counterterrorism measures against parents. He said five days later, the DOJ wrote a memorandum that does just that. Representative Adam Kinzinger was the lone Republican to vote in favor of the bill. The bill also aims to combat white supremacist and neo-Nazi infiltration of military forces. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The Senate passes a $40 billion aid package for Ukraine in a vote of 86 to 11. The House already passed the bill earlier this month, and it is now heading to President Biden's desk for signature. Here are the details. The $40 billion aid package to Ukraine includes over $20 billion in military assistance, $14 billion in humanitarian assistance, and other economic assistance. This amount is $7 billion more than what the Biden administration had requested. Both the Republican and the Democratic leadership support the package. Anyone concerned about the cost of supporting a Ukrainian victory should consider the much larger cost should Ukraine Lose. This should already have been done and over with, but it is repugnant that one member of the other side, the junior senator from Kentucky, chose to make a show and obstruct Ukraine funding knowing full well he couldn't actually stop its passage. 
Eleven Republicans voted against the bill, including Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. He stalled the bill for a week and refused to advance it unless the bill ensured that an inspector general could monitor exactly how the money was being spent. In a speech last week, Paul said that no matter how sympathetic the cause, his oath of office is to the national security of the United States of America, not to any foreign nation. We cannot save Ukraine by dooming the U.S. economy. In March, inflation hit a 40-year high. The $60 billion to Ukraine could fund substantial portions or entire large cabinet departments. The $60 billion nearly equals the entire State Department budget. The $60 billion exceeds the budget for the Department of Homeland Security and for the Department of Energy. And Congress just wants to keep on spending and spending. Congress has so far approved over $53 billion in aid to Ukraine since the war started. That is roughly 80 percent of Russia's defense budget last year and more than one-fourth the size of the Ukrainian economy before the war. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. As Sweden and Finland inch closer to NATO, we look at the, the impact their prospective membership could have on both the NATO allies and on Russia. I spoke with foreign policy expert Harley Lippmann to learn more. Harley, welcome. Thank you for having me here. What do you think NATO member countries will consider when assessing Finland and Sweden's applications? Well, I think the NATO countries are going to be excited to have two very important countries in Europe to strengthen NATO. Uh, you do need the approval of all 30 NATO nations. However, Turkey and Hungary are voicing objections, which is interesting because these countries are ruled by authoritarian leaders who have a good rapport with Putin and who role model, especially in Hungary, their country along the lines of the way Putin rules Russia. And they're also dependent on oil. So they have been raising objections to the membership of Finland and, and um, Sweden. NATO's purpose is to preserve freedom. So with that in mind, what do you think the alliance should consider in these applications? NATO is an entirely defensive organization. There's nothing offensive in their training or their doctrine or anything that is, uh, is about their planning. It's, it's all about just preserving the status quo, allowing countries to choose, choose their own form of government, and having the territorial integrity of their sovereign nation recognized as independent. So that, that's where that is. I think that um, the impact on NATO is going to be profound, because Finland is going to be an extraordinary addition to the military firepower and the strategic strength of NATO. For one, Finland has an 830-mile border with Russia. One of the, the main reason that Putin uses, or one of his reasons to go into Ukraine is because he didn't want NATO to expand further. He didn't want Ukraine to be part of NATO. But yet, it seems right now that it has backfired on Putin. His invasion of Ukraine has now extraordinarily strengthened NATO with the admission of Sweden and Finland. Also, Sweden uh, and Finland have very robust militaries, particularly Finland. Finland has the largest number of cannons in Europe, 1,500. They have among the best cybersecurity and cyber controls in, on the continent. And uh, they have a very effective fighting force that has always been preparing for this day. Finland was occupied by Russia for 100 years, just like Ukraine. So Russia can make the claim that Finland is really part of historic Russia. And so they see the parallels and they see that, if you know, when when uh, military dictatorships embark on aggressive military intervention, they only stop when they're forced to stop. So if they prevail in Ukraine, the people of Finland and Sweden feel they likely will be next. And what kind of relationship does Sweden have with Russia? Sweden and Finland have both since for seven decades, actually. I mean, going back to 1917, when Finland became an independent country, they both had this strategy that they would be militarily self-sufficient, but now they feel Putin is, is dangerous and, and, to quote them, unpredictable. And they were particularly disturbed 
by comments coming from Russia about the use of chemical or even nuclear weapons. And all that increased the momentum for NATO membership. And does their seeking NATO membership mean they're taking a stronger stance against authoritarianism? Absolutely. This is one way of viewing this conflict is this is a clash between democracy and dictatorship. And so a lot rests on this. That's why you want democratic forces to prevail. Harley Lippmann, thank you. Thank you. One of Turkey's main objections to the new applicants is the status of some 30 Kurdish dissidents who currently reside in Sweden and Finland. They're wanted on terrorism-related charges in Turkey, which says the two prospective NATO members refused to extradite them. And the Biden administration is pushing amendments to the regulations that govern the World Health Organization to give its director unprecedented powers. He would be able to declare a public health emergency in any nation. And he could base it on whatever evidence he chooses. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services described what they call the importance of equity and equitable access to medical countermeasures and the negative impacts of misinformation and disinformation related to the pandemic. They say that's why the international health regulations should be updated. The path that we're on right now with these proposed amendments and this international pandemic treaty that they're seeking uh, leads straight to global tyranny. Alex Newman is an investigative journalist. He told NTD the ultimate goal is to make the WHO a global health ministry with more power than any government or institution should have. If the regulation is updated according to the proposal, a few significant changes would be made. One is that if the WHO declares a public health emergency in a country, it doesn't have to get verification from the country where the crisis is declared, nor does it have to consult with them beforehand. And the WHO can accept reports from sources outside of the nation in question. Another change is that if a nation with a suspected health problem doesn't cooperate within 48 hours, the WHO could share that country's information with other nations. Newman says going down this path can have a dangerous outcome. Communist China has an enormous influence within the WHO. When you add to that the fact that the WHO is run by an individual who's been very closely associated with communist movements. In fact, he served on the Central Committee of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a, a Marxist organization with a long history of violence and other problems. Uh, this just becomes a recipe for disaster. But according to the United Nations, the WHO should get these powers. One UN report claimed in May 2021 that the pandemic would have been avoided if the International Health Organization had had greater authority. According to Newman, Americans' basic rights and liberties are on the line. It is critical that Americans who value their, their liberties, Americans who value the ability to govern themselves without interference from foreign powers, from international organizations, get involved. Uh, there are several options right now that are being pursued by some of the forces opposed to this. Uh, one, of course, is to contact Congress and to point out that uh, this is a very bad use of taxpayer money. It's an outrageous abuse of power by the Biden administration and try to get Congress to stop it. The proposed U.S. amendments are scheduled to be discussed next week. That's when the U.N.'s 75th World Health Assembly in Geneva, Switzerland, will take place. Coming up, a Florida mother is giving away extra breast milk to other moms who can't find formula for their babies. And she's not the only one. And a winner in Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary is yet to be determined. And results in Oregon's primary are being delayed. Find out what's holding them up after this short break. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know.
Washington is taking more steps to address the baby formula shortage. President Biden is invoking the Defense Production Act, and two bills are heading to the Senate after passing in the House late last night. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. As desperate parents struggle to feed their babies, the government is taking more action to help. When I get to work in the morning, I look for formula. When we're finally sitting on the couch for an hour at night, we're looking for formula. President Biden Wednesday invoked the Defense Production Act to help formula makers get ingredients more quickly. The Defense Production Act gives the government the ability to require suppliers to direct needed resources to infant formula manufacturers before any other customer who may have ordered that goods. Baby formula aisles at U.S. supermarkets have been decimated since top U.S. manufacturer Abbott in February recalled formulas after complaints of bacterial infections. Meanwhile, two bills are heading to the Senate after passing in the House late the Wednesday night. The Access to Baby Formula Act has strong bipartisan support. It would allow low-income families to use their WIC benefits to buy more brands. WIC families purchase about half the formula in the U.S. Right now, they're limited to certain brands, including Abbott. It supplies 89% of infants who are covered under WIC. If we can't find it in the stores, then we lose our benefit. The second bill would provide $28 million in emergency funding to the FDA. Part of it would pay for more FDA inspectors at formula plants. Republicans objected to this bill. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise said it doesn't resolve the issue. It simply throws more money at the FDA. Criticisms growing about how long it took Washington to act since Abbott's plant shut down in February. Abbott said Monday that after FDA approval, it could restart the plant within two weeks. And it'd take another six to eight weeks for the product to reach store shelves. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Many mothers are hitting dead ends trying to find formula for their babies. And some of them are turning to other moms for help. Here's the story. Like many parents, Heather Nicholas is terrified, searching and searching near her home in Wesley Chapel, Florida, for baby formula for her five-month-old son, Roman. I don't have the formula that I need, so your mind doesn't stop thinking about it, especially at night. I hate to say, I've lost a lot of sleep. Desperate, Heather turned to social media. I had other local breastfeeding mothers who came to me and they were like, listen, you know, there's these groups. And in one of those groups, someone not too far away saw her plea. I have so much of a supply that I have a deep freezer that is um, absolutely full of milk. Callie Ayers, mom to five-month-old Elizabeth, has pumped so much extra milk that she wants to give it away to other moms. Putting myself into the shoes of those mothers um, is really what motivated me. Um, I can't imagine how scary that would be. So last week, Heather and Callie decided to meet in the parking lot of a nearby grocery store. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I brought you a lot. This is full. <laughs> I think I could tell that she was very um, stressed out um, trying to figure out how to feed her baby so I could just see like the stress lift off of her. I'm gonna try not to cry right now. You can cry. I'm super emotional this week. Oh, can I give you a hug? Yes, you okay. I was in your shoes when my baby was first born. Heather and Callie aren't the only ones doing this. Facebook, full of parents sharing breast milk with one another. But the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't recommend this kind of unregulated sharing. Its spokesperson saying the quality and safety of the milk cannot be assured. You're not going through the process of getting that breast milk screened for infectious diseases or getting screened for things like drugs. You also don't know how old that breast milk is. You don't know what the process has been to keep it refrigerated. Heather says she feels comfortable with Callie. She was upfront about her situation and her lifestyle, her diet, all sorts of things. And was relieved to give Roman his first bottle of Callie's milk. Vote counting continues in Pennsylvania for the Republican U.S. Senate nomination. And in Oregon, primary results are delayed because of one county's blurry barcode ballots. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Suspense is growing in Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary. Mail-in ballots continue to be counted as celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz and businessman David McCormick await the results in a race too close to call. 
Oz now has a projected 31.2% of the vote against McCormick's 31.1%. In Pennsylvania, an automatic recount is held when leading candidates are within a 0.5% difference. Thousands of votes have yet to be counted. Most are absentee ballots. The Pennsylvania Secretary of State's office says more than 100,000 mail-in ballots have yet to be counted and that it could take a few days to report unofficial results. Around 20% of mail-in ballots counted in the Senate race so far were for the Republican Party, suggesting there could be over 20,000 more Republican votes. Trump-endorsed Oz is being urged to declare victory by the former president. And in Oregon, blurry ballot barcodes are delaying primary results. Seven-term incumbent Democratic Congressman Kurt Schrader represents Oregon's 5th Congressional District. He is in a tight race with progressive candidate Jamie McLeod Skinner. The race remains too close to call, largely because of results outstanding from Clackamas. County Chairwoman Tootie Smith said at a news conference the county offered Hall extra staff in early May when the problem with the defective ballots were discovered, but Hall didn't accept the offer. They have known about the blurred barcodes for weeks. They must take the steps necessary to correct this problem they knew about weeks ago. Election workers are transferring the votes to fresh ballots by hand so they can be counted. We will assist them by supplying additional people and any other resource necessary to ensure a timely, accurate election process and honoring voter integrity. Hall says the tally will be done by June 13th, which is the last day to certify results under state law. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, California libraries are getting LGBTQ books for free thanks to a nonprofit that donates them. We hear various perspectives on the book donations from members of the community. And at the PGA Championship, Tiger Woods was back in action, but noticeably limping. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down his first round performance. That and more when we return on NTD News. Nonprofit is donating LGBTQ books to California school libraries. Their goal is to make them accessible to the youth. But some teachers and parents are speaking out against it. NTD's Eileen Ang has more. Nonprofit Gender Nation is giving out LGBTQ books to public school libraries. On Tuesday, they celebrated the donation in the West Contra Costa Unified School District. And this is an incredible opportunity uh, for our students to learn about others uh, who share the same experience that they do, um, to feel safe and protected from bullying. Thousands of LGBTQ books will be donated to nine Bay Area school districts, Alameda, Albany, Berkeley, Fairfield, Oakland, Piedmont, San Francisco, San Mateo, and West Contra Costa. Today, we can proudly say that hundreds of thousands of kids have access to these books. That is hundreds of thousands of kids who now go to schools that are just a little bit more welcoming, a little bit more representative of either them or someone in their lives. According to Gender Nation's website, they provide access to stories that represent people all across the sexuality and gender spectrum so that kids can feel more seen and heard and supported early on in their development. But not everyone feels the same way. A teacher from the West Contra Costa District said the messaging creates contradictions. I think it's almost like we're trying to solve bullying while we're creating bullying because now we have these very favored groups. And, and if you're not an ally of LGBTQIA+, or you're not affirming, then aren't you, in their language, now a hater? Their minds are very very impressionable and from what i see it's it's not right to push this stuff on children children should remain innocent as long as possible they don't need these um ideas pushed into their head students are being indoctrinated during lunchtime with a specific um plan to not alert parents so how did parents become um, 
second-class citizens in the rearing and training and nurturing and guidance of their own offspring. That's what's upsetting to so many. Both Disbro and Miranda believe that school should be a place where kids focus on learning English, math, art, and science. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. Scientists are concerned about the significant threat that a new invasive species may have in California. The Asian jumping worm, though its name almost sounds comical, is quite destructive. And just a warning to those that aren't a fan of worms, this next story may disturb. NTD's David Lamb reports. Amenthus agrestis is a species of worm, but unlike regular earthworms, they can jump and wiggle around vigorously. They're also known as the Asian jumping worm, Asian crazy worm, or Alabama jumper. It was reportedly first seen in California last July in Napa County, though several people said on Twitter they've seen the worms before. They likely came into the state through moving potted plants, soil, compost, or fishing bait. The U.S. Forest Service reports that the jumping worm can flip up to a foot off the ground. If they get into a forest or garden, it may open up a can of worms. Researchers like Lee Freilich are concerned about this species. This forest ecology researcher said the jumping worms can cause erosion to the top two inches of soil. This makes the soil loose and ultimately affects plant growth. And if the plants are destroyed, the whole plant pollinator network goes down and that's the base of the whole ecosystem. The worms are considered non-native and invasive. There's a band around a mature worm called the clitellum and in a jumping worm that goes all the way around and it tends to be lighter colored in the jumping worms and they're quite aggressive compared to the European worms. They spread faster, they thrash around when you touch them. The Forest Service said they'd be less problematic if they didn't spread into forests. According to the Department of Agriculture, the Asian jumping worm is an invasive species and is native to East Central Asia. They were found in the U.S. late 1800s, but have been recently invading natural habitats in the Northeast and Midwest. People are advised to report them to the Department of Natural Resources if found. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Though smash-and-grab robbery has slowed down in California, it is still happening. But what the robbers didn't count on this time was the staff fighting back by throwing whatever they could at them. NTD's Jackie Rios has a story. Smash-and-grab robbers targeted David's jewelry in Los Angeles' city of El Monte on Tuesday around 1.15 p.m. Three male suspects entered the store, wielding hammers, smashing cases, and trying to grab the most expensive jewelry. But there was a twist when the store's owner, who requested to remain anonymous for his own safety, tried to stop the crooks. We, we fought back. We started throwing chairs at them or whatever we had uh, that we can get, grab our hands on. You know, we were throwing a stapler, calculator, whatever we can find out. To, to throw at them. I grab a chair and a stool and I end up hitting one of them, you know. And uh, they happened so quickly, it maybe like 40 seconds that it took them to come in and, and, and do it, yeah. But uh, they, they came really violently, you know, like uh, just smashing the cases. The staff, not giving in without a fight, chased the crooks outside the store. The owner was injured in the scuffle. Yes, I went after them. I, I actually uh, fought with them, you know, struggled with them. I tried to punch them, kick them, and uh, when I was doing that, uh, they tried to hit me with the hammer. They ended up hitting me uh, on, uh, on my eye, yeah. The crooks ended up escaping with around $950,000 in jewelry. The owner said he is recovering but still feels angry that it happened. This was the first time the store experienced a smash-and-grab robbery in the 10 years it's been in El Monte. The owner mentioned the police are investigating to see if there's any connection to previous robberies in nearby cities. Surveillance cameras caught footage of the thieves jumping into a black Chevrolet avalanche. The owner asked the public to contact the El Monte Police Department if they have any information. Many prominent people are talking about stagflation high inflation combined with a stagnant economy. The last time we saw this prominently was in the 1970s, which was followed by a recession. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. 
At a G7 meeting Wednesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, Food and energy prices are having stagflationary effects. In his new book, former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke wrote that there could be stagflation in the next year or two, and 77% of fund managers see stagflation coming. Stagflation happens when the economy is stagnating at the same time there's high inflation. It seems very likely at this point. Robert Wright is a senior faculty fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Wright says when the economy is shrinking, businesses don't have reasons to keep people employed. So if the economy continues to shrink, then they, uh, businesses will likely shed workers. Stagflation is uncommon because during economic downturns, prices usually fall. Businesses are forced to cut their prices as demand for their products dwindles. If stagflation has to come, it has to come from the supply chain crisis or the food inflation, which is going through the roof. Sankar Sharma is the founder of RiskRewardReturn.com. Sharma says the Fed has no control over the supply chain. The Fed mainly has the power to change interest rates and money supply. We're already seeing stagflation by definition. We have extremely high inflation, and the economy fell by 1.4% last quarter. John Dunham is the president of John Dunham & Associates. Dunham doubts the economy will grow much this quarter. Real GDP dropped by 1.4% in the first quarter, but unemployment is still very low. So we're not exactly seeing the great stagflation of 2022 at the moment. You get out of it through um, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, uh, and that induces uh, a recession and uh, People get laid off, but uh, money supply growth decreases, and uh, so that puts um, you know downward pressure on on prices. Robert Wright, the senior faculty fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, says this is what Paul Volcker did during the stagflationary period in the 1980s. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Round one of the PGA Championship started today with Rory McIlroy as the early leader shooting a 5-under 65. The 33-year-old has won four majors, including the PGA Championship twice before, but none since 2014. Other notables include Bubba Watson, Jordan Spieth, and John Daly, who all shot two over 72s. Tiger Woods, meanwhile, finished with a four over 74. The 46-year-old started with a pair of birdies in his first five holes, but soon the 15-time major champion was seen limping around the course as his score plummeted. At one point, Woods bogeyed three straight holes before mixing in a birdie. He then ended the round with two more bogeys. Woods made his return from a 17-month absence in last month's Masters after nearly losing his leg in a car accident in February of 2021. Although he started out strong at Augusta with an opening round 71, he struggled to a pair of 78s and finished in 47th place. In the NBA tonight, Miami looks to take a 2-0 lead at home over Boston. The Heat ran away with Game 1 in the second half by dominating the third quarter, where they outscored Boston 39-14. The Celtics were without starters Marcus Smart and Al Horford. While Smart's midfoot sprain has improved, Horford is still in the NBA's health and safety protocols. Boston hasn't said whether he tested positive for COVID or not and are listing him as doubtful. Meanwhile, teammate Derek White will miss the game as well for the impending birth of his child. Boston will need all the help they can get as Heat guard Jimmy Butler burned them for 41 points on just 19 shots in the opener while grabbing 5 rebounds and dishing 5 assists. Miami will be missing guard Kyle Lowry, who's missed a significant portion of these playoffs with a hamstring injury. On the ice, the battle of Sunshine State continues with Game 2 as Florida looks to even their series with Tampa Bay. The two-time defending champion Lightning won the opener 4-1 on the strength of three power play goals. Florida, meanwhile, failed to score on their man advantages all three times. They are now 0-21 in these playoffs. Tampa Bay center Braden Point missed Game 1 and almost tonight's contest as well with a lower body injury suffered in the team's Game 7 win over Toronto. In the nightcap, the Avalanche hosts the Blues looking to take a 2-0 lead. After sweeping Nashville in Round 1, Colorado is now 5-0 in these playoffs and could tie the team record with a win tonight. 
On the other side, St. Louis center Ryan O'Reilly can set a franchise record by scoring in his sixth straight game. In other NHL news, the finalists for the Coach of the Year, known as the Jack Adams Award, have been announced. Andrew Burnett of Florida, the Rangers' Gerard Gallant, and Daryl Sutter of Calgary were named the finalists. Gallant previously won an award in 2018 when he coached Vegas. Last year's winner was Rod Brindamore of Carolina. That's all for your sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Russia says 1,700 Ukrainian fighters have surrendered since Monday. They also released footage showing the conditions of the surrendered soldiers. And Shanghai says that they've resumed production, yet the opposite may be true. Restrictions remain in place, causing significant impacts on residents' everyday lives. More soon here on NTD News. Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Russia says 1,700 Ukrainian fighters have surrendered from the besieged Azovstal steelworks since Monday. Leaders of the Russia-backed rebel Donetsk region says that's more than half the fighters in the steel plant. Russia also released some footage showing the conditions of the surrendered soldiers. NTD's Eddie Aitken has more. Russia's defense ministry said on Thursday that nearly 800 Ukrainian fighters had surrendered from the Avostal steelworks in Mariupol in the last 24 hours, making the total 1,700 since Monday. Some of the men purported to be surrendered fighters from the Azov regiment could be seen with crutches and eye patches in the footage released by the ministry. The leader of the Russian-backed rebel Donetsk region said more than half the Ukrainian fighters in the bunkers below the steel plant have surrendered and the International Committee of the Red Cross is registering them. Russia's Defense Ministry posted videos on Wednesday of what it said were surrendered Ukrainian fighters receiving hospital treatment. In a trial with huge symbolic importance for Kiev, the Russian soldier accused of war crime apologized in court to the widow of a man he is accused of killing. Vadim Shishimarin, a 21-year-old Russian tank commander, pleaded guilty on Wednesday and, if convicted, could be sentenced to life. Please tell me, do you repent of the crime you committed? Yes, I admit guilt. I understand that you will not be able to forgive me. I apologize for everything I have done. The prosecutor said that pleading guilty could serve as a mitigating circumstance in the court's decision to convict him of a war crime, and there was a witness to the killing. The soldier's lawyer said he pleaded guilty. This didn't necessarily mean that he pleaded guilty to the exact qualifications which the prosecutors issued. Thursday is Ukraine's Vishivanka Day. On the eve of the event, volunteers brought Vishivankas, a traditional embroidered shirt, to a maternity hospital ward in Odessa. Vishivanka is a good luck charm, an amulet of happiness, good luck and love. And you know more girls were born today and you do not know what it means? It means that peace and our victory will come. The Vishivanka is considered a symbol of national revival. It became popular again after Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. President Volodymyr Zelensky also changed into a traditional embroidered shirt on Thursday. I wish you health, strong, unbreakable, brave and free. Happy Vishivanka Day, Ukraine. Eddie Itkin, NTD News. A handful of cases of monkeypox have now been reported or are suspected in Britain, parts of Europe and the United States. It's causing some alarm among public health officials, but experts say it's unlikely to spread like COVID. NTD's Joanna Conway brings us this report and just a warning, the footage in this story is graphic and may be disturbing to some viewers. 
The UK has now identified nine cases of monkeypox. Authorities say all those diagnosed are based in South England and most in London. At least four of the cases are among men who have had some recent same-sex relations, suggesting there may be a transmission in the community. A Spanish newspaper reported the same, of 22 out of 23 suspected cases in the Madrid region. It has prompted UK authorities to offer a smallpox vaccine to some healthcare workers and others who may have been exposed. What are the symptoms? It usually starts with fever and headache. People feel pretty miserable and tired. They can get swollen glands. And then this typical rash develops, which is sort of pustular in form. Most people will recover and recover fully within a few weeks. How does it spread? It's normally spread by close contact, um, either touching the skin or alternatively from touching bedding or shared utensils of some sort. What's unusual about the recent cases? Monkeypox rarely is seen outside of Africa. When it is, it's brought to another country by uh, somebody going through international travel. And what we're not sure about is how connected the different clusters of cases in the UK, Portugal, Spain, even one case in the USA are. Should we be concerned? We really need to get a grip of and, and control as, as quickly as we can. There's no need to panic here. This is not going to spread and get into the general population and cause an epidemic like coronavirus has. Joanna Conway, NTD News. Shanghai authorities say that the city is starting to get back to normal. But more than half of its 26 million residents are still living under lockdown, while the other half is subject to restrictions. Here's more. After nearly two months in lockdown, some residents in Shanghai can now leave their homes to go shopping with restrictions. Some were given passes to purchase food on Thursday, though only one person per household is allowed out at one supermarket. Shoppers were instructed to line up at the store's entrance, standing six feet apart, and have to show their shopper passes before they could enter. The passes allowed one person from each household to enter the store for a maximum of 40 minutes and spend up to $74. They were told to walk or ride a bicycle to get there and back, since buses are still shut down. At another market, only 50 people were let in at a time. Stall owners were mandated to take one PCR test and one antigen test daily. And the area was also disinfected three times a day. Beyond food markets, customers out of one barber shop must make reservations in advance with only two customers allowed in at a time. And what happens when the barbershop owner lives in a neighborhood still under lockdown? Clips caught people lining up at the edge of one neighborhood just for a haircut. Demand for a trim was so high, the long waiting line continued after sundown. Despite the restrictions, the allowances still mark a big change for life in the city. Over 15 million of Shanghaiers are still confined inside areas labeled as prevention zones and are not yet allowed to leave the house. That number makes up more than half of the city's population. Videos taken at the city's center show it still looks more like a ghost town than the heart of a normally bustling financial hub. Coming up, Rome's urban vegetable gardens see a rise in applications to join after two years of the pandemic. They offer residents an opportunity to socialize outside. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Rome's urban vegetable gardens have seen a rise in applications to join after two years of the pandemic. The gardens remained open during the city's several lockdowns, providing a welcome break for people who were isolated in their homes. NDD's Andrew Thomas has more. 
Roman citizens have shown a renewed interest in green public areas. During the first period of the pandemic in Italy, almost every outdoor activity was prohibited. But urban vegetable gardens remained open and welcomed citizens who wanted a breath of fresh air. During the pandemic, something very interesting happened because everything was closed, including public parks. But since the urban vegetable gardens are something meant to be cultivated because it's city farming, in reality, they stayed open. Lots of people discovered these places because they were the only ones where one could walk and it was allowed to go because they were open and visible. The gardens also offer a way for Romans to socialize. In 2014, thanks to a friend, I received an email about this initiative, and together with a friend, we arrived here and we started this journey together to do some manual labor and share with other people a journey together and share ideas. At the beginning, it was only practical advice on the cultivation of the vegetable garden. Tre Fontane Urban Vegetable Garden was established in 2013. The garden is made up of 121 plots and approximately 300 associates. 20% of those plots have to be assigned to associations involved in social activities and promoting social goals. With COVID, we have been, let's say, a bit luckier than other categories because to be around the vegetable garden in periods when everything was closed was an opportunity compared to others. Because there was distancing, open air, which was not the case in public places like cafes and restaurants. Instead, here it is all open air and it was possible to talk being at a distance of even 30, 50 meters. Some people from a local public mental health institute cultivate some plots for therapeutic reasons, while some volunteers help children of immigrants with Italian lessons in the afternoon, and retirees can chat and play cards. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.